Uh, we'll be looking at verses 10 to chapter 2, verse 1, which I think is an unfortunate chapter division in the text. And we saw last week, uh, speaking of the elders, he says, He must hold firm to the uh, trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's pray. Father of grace, we've come to a difficult text, but a very important text for the sanctification of your people, for the purification of your church. We pray your spirit would lead us today. Edit my plans and my agenda so that your people could hear the word of God in a manner that befits your glory and benefits your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A while back, I read about a man named Howard who was a very religious man. In fact, uh, he had served his church up to this point of the reading 75 years. He was very committed to his church. He, he was involved in their soup ministry in the church, food ministry, pantry ministry. Uh, every year he went with the youth on a choir trip to Europe and two weeks every spring he went to South America to help build churches. And even when he visited his children in Southern California, he was as committed to their church there as he was his home church. He never missed a worship service. Uh, Howard was a very religious man. But what about Jesus in that equation? What about his relationship with God in that equation? Here's what he said. Yeah, I'm pretty sure God exists, but I'm not really all that sure who or what God is. Maybe when I die, that's it. It's all over. I don't know, but when I die, if I find out there really is a God waiting for me, I can say I lived a pretty good life and served his church. I can't even imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have my church. Here was a man who was serving his church, but not serving the true and living God. And then, in this same book, I read about a man named Cliff. Cliff was a servant's servant. He had a very strong moral fiber that had been handed to him by his parents, and it had served him so well. Uh, Cliff's aim in life 
was to make sure all the needs of all the people around him were met. And if going to heaven was dependent upon a person's moral energy, then Cliff was going to get in. Unfortunately, that's what Cliff believed. Cliff believed that God was basing his favor upon Cliff on Cliff's moral uh, discipline and devotion. But as he got older, Cliff began to realize that it was all a front. He recognized that he was performing and he was putting on a masquerade show because he recognized how corrupt his heart really was. And yet, Cliff could not fully come to terms with the gospel of grace. And then one night, he's watching a Billy Gray crusade with his children and a friend. Billy Graham gave the invitation, and he looked over at his family, and he said, I wish I could make that commitment, but I'm not good enough or strong enough. And they tried to speak to him, tried to convince him that salvation is all of grace. There's nothing you can do to earn the favor of God. It's not by our works. Even the highest works among us is filthy rags to God. But it was to no avail. And a short time later, he died of a heart attack. And his son, who was a believer, said it was the saddest day of his life because he recognized that his dad slipped into a Christless eternity. You know, there are countless millions like Howard and Cliff in every generation. In fact, this kind of thinking is very primitive. And that's why one of the central burdens of the New Testament, one of the central themes of the New Testament, is against false teaching, which as a rule in the Scripture is a very works-based kind of approach to life, a performance-based kind of religion that emphasizes rules that are extra-biblical and de-emphasizes Scripture itself and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, you can see throughout the, the, the Scriptures various writers who, who warn us of the kind of false teaching that will arise. For instance, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus speaking says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So he's saying here that false prophets will arise and they will arise in every generation. Or Peter's warning in Second Peter chapter 2 where he speaks of this kind of false teaching. He says false pr- prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. And he's writing to, to churches here. Now, keep in mind, false teachers don't carry a business card, all right? They don't wear black hats like they do in the Westerns. In fact, they're just as nice as true teachers. Their personalities are just as warm as true teachers. Uh, So how do you recognize false teachers? He says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then even John himself, uh, in his gospel, or in his epistle, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out in the world. And then Jude, brother, uh, Jesus' half-brother, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for their condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the real burdens of Scripture is to protect us from false teaching, to make us aware of false teaching. And this false teaching is essentially the kind of teaching that is centered on works and performance and extra-biblical traditions, man-made traditions, and they de-emphasize the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the burden of the pastoral epistles is no exception to that. I was talking to a friend just yesterday. As, as, as we've been going through the pastoral epistles, one of the things you see is a repetition. But that repetition uh, is inspired. And so the fact that I sound like a broken record up here every week talking about false teaching, that burden is inspired because of the real danger that false teaching presents. And maybe there is no text in all of the pastoral epistles that's more clear on the problem of works-based heresy and the need for elders to take that on than our present passage in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. And the first thing we're going to see, um, last week we saw Paul uh, calling Titus to appoint elders in every town, every town would have had their own churches. He calls Titus to appoint elders, and he says there's a reason for that. It's to put things in order. And part of the ordering is to deal with false teaching in the church. And we see that, first and foremost. Elders must rebuke false doctrine so that Christ's church may be sound in the faith. Elders must rebuke false doctrine so that Christ's church may be sound in the faith. Look on me in verse 10. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now note that word for. Um, this passage and last week's passage is connected by that word for. In other words, the reason Titus is to appoint elders in every place is that there are, he says, many false teachers. And so the, the logic is this. The counter strategy to keeping false teaching at bay is the appointing of faithful elders. You could also draw an implication. Without faithful elders, false teaching will have its way in the local church. And Paul gives a threefold description of these false teachers at the beginning here and at the end of the passage. Notice, he says they are insubordinate, 
And that means that they are not submissive to the authority of the apostle. They're not submissive to the authority of the Word of God. We see that rampant today in churches. Churches that are embracing the homosexual agenda. Um, these are insubordinate churches. These are insubordinate pastors. He says they're insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And at the very end of that passage, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And Paul says he has the circumcision party in mind. Now, what is the circumcision party? Well, in various places... In fact, three different places, Paul says, circumcision or uncircumcision are anything. They're nothing. They're irrelevant. The circumcision party were a group of professing Jewish Christians who taught that salvation is through Christ, but in addition, you have to keep various ceremonial laws and in particular, circumcision. And so this... Outward form of religion is what Paul is getting at. And Paul says this kind of religion does not and cannot change the heart. The heart is the core issue. In fact, he had dealt with this earlier in Colossians. We saw this in our study of Colossians. He, he's dealing with what appears to be a very similar heresy in Colossae. In chapter 2, verse 18 of Colossians, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That is a kind of religion that emphasizes things that you cannot do that are essentially extra-biblical things. He says, In worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Who is the head? That is Jesus from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says that conversion and spiritual growth is from God. It's not by jumping through religious hoops. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why is if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Of course, he's referring to extra-biblical things here, according, uh, referring to things that are all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Notice that, self-made religion. It's religion that's not grounded in the Word of God, a word that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, "...they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." And I'm convinced that the reason many unbelievers remain unconvinced about the Christian faith is that when they evaluate professing Christians, they're evaluating a parody of the Christian faith. The kind of parody that emphasizes do's and don'ts that have nothing to do with Scripture. The kind of parody that is not emphasizing and centered on the head, Jesus Christ, from whom we have our growth, from whom we have our hearts that are gloriously warmed and chained. About, uh, I guess you would say, six years ago, Seth was three and a half years old. It was about this time. It was right after Fall Festival. Uh, we were, I was doing an interim at the time in Richmond. But we had a lot of candy in the house. 
And Seth comes to me, he's three and a half years old, and he says, Daddy, my ear hurts. And I could tell that his ear did hurt. Um, in fact, he had an ear infection. And, and I, so I, um, I took him to Heather, and she gave him some children's Motrin. And I could tell that his ear started feeling better because he came into my room just a few minutes later and said, you know what would make my ear feel better? I said, no. He said, candy. And at the time, I guess I was 41 years old. Um, I said, Seth, I'm 41 years old, and I've just learned that. That ear, that candy actually helps an ear infection. He said, yes, sir, it does. I said, so let me go see what we can do. So I went in there, and I found this Tootsie Roll, those long Tootsie Rolls, and, I, and he was salivating. And I uh, undid the packaging on the Tootsie Roll. And I said, come here. And he's ready to eat that thing. I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stick that through your ear. And I'm going to pull it out the other side. And his eyes got very large. But here's the remarkable thing. He let me do it. Now, I didn't, I didn't actually do it. But I took the Tootsie Roll and I took it to his earlobe. And I said, man, that is too thick. What I'm going to have to do is slice it in half, and then maybe we can push it through the ear out the other side. And so I went over there, and I sliced the, the Tootsie Roll. And at this point, his eyes are filling with tears, and I knew I had taken that joke way too far. <laughs> but if you think about it, we know how ridiculous it is to think that you could uh, treat an ear infection by sticking something in the ear. But it's just as ridiculous, Paul would say, to think that jumping through religious hoops can change a person's heart. Religious hoops are no more effective in treating heart infection than a piece of candy is in treating an ear infection. Uh, these circumcision people, they were, these were Jesus plus people, okay? Or you could call them gospel plus people. They would recognize, they would even use the language of grace. They use language like we do. For those of you that have ever been to Utah on a mission trip, and we've had several who've gone, who have ministered to the Latter-day Saints there, they use the same language we do. That's what makes it tricky. They use the, if you were to say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they would agree with you. Okay? But then as you explore further, you begin to recognize it's Jesus plus jumping through particular hoops. That's what these people were teaching here uh, in Crete, and it was causing devastation. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, they must be silenced. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one responsibility of elders is to silence false teaching. That's why it's almost impossible for it to fall on one man. Okay? For one man to be responsible for ensuring doctrinal purity in a church is virtually impossible. 
That's why it falls on elders, not an elder. One of the responsibilities and callings of elders is to silence false teaching, to make sure to prevent false teaching from having a platform in the church. And these false teachers, these particular false teachers, evidently weren't doing their main damage in the worship service. It appears that they were gathering with groups in homes. And there's likely one main reason for this. In the large group, you're, you're more apt to have believers who are grounded in the faith, who can discern this, and they have their antennas up, and it can, you know, it can circumvent what the false teachers are trying to do. In fact, that's mainly, I think, the reason why cults focus on door-to-door ministry today. And notice what they're doing. They are teaching that which they're not to teach. Uh, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And it's clear that this was extra-biblical and legalistic kind of teaching, ritual purity, food laws. And sometimes false teaching is not necessarily uh, saying something that's wrong. It's, it's by what you ignore that makes it wrong. And so if a person is not, let's just say a Sunday school teacher, If a Sunday school teacher is teaching moral platitudes, that's not necessarily wrong. God's people are called to a gospel-shaped, gospel-informed, gospel-empowered morality. But if it's a morality without being centered on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without the gospel, then it is wrong. And so sometimes things are taught wrongly just because other things are ignored. And essentially, in this case, they're teaching extra things. And furthermore, they were doing it for shameful gain. Look with me in verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And so they're to silence and they're to rebuke, the elders are, so that they may be sound in the faith. Notice they were doing this for shameful gain. Now, we, it's easy to identify the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on TV who do this for shameful gain. Recently, a false teacher on television said God wanted him to have a, what, a $65 million private leer. It's easy to critique that. In fact, that very guy tweeted recently that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we could be financially wealthy. He got so much pushback that he... He deleted the tweet. It's easy to critique that. But I would submit to you, this is prevalent even in professing evangelical churches. Uh, Pastors who water down the message. Pastors who avoid certain controversial texts, controversial doctrines, so that people will not be offended, so that people will come back, so that... They can build large numbers. It doesn't have to be just financial uh, greed here. It could be a desire for growing a large church. It could be a desire for growing in status. Uh, But this is a, a problem that is epidemic in church history. Now, he appeals here to a prophet among the Cretes, um, 
who had famously said, Cretans are always all liars and evil beasts. Uh, scholars tell us he is quoting a 6th a century B.C. prophet named Epimedes, okay? And he's evidently applying this quotation to the false teachers. And it seems that Paul is writing with irony here. And here's the reason. If the Cretans agree with that statement, then they've condemned themselves, okay? And if they deny it, they make one of their own prophets out to be a liar. And Paul says this has to be rebuked. Um, but taking on error isn't because we are bigoted, okay? I have seen a great deal of that recently. We have Christian leaders who are uh, rebuking the gay rights agenda, and the media makes these guys out to be bigots and narrow-minded haters, all because they are defending the biblical and historical view of marriage. We are called to silence false teaching in the church and to rebuke false teaching, not because we're bigoted. It's so that God's people, notice, may be sound in the faith. What we believe matters. It really does. Doctrine matters. So that you may be healthy. That's the verb, or that word there, sound, is the word we get the word hygiene. Okay, so that we might be healthy and whole in the faith. Now, what is the faith? The faith is the body of doctrine that we believe. A body of doctrine that is centered on the living God as we know him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A body of doctrine that is centered on his purposes in the world to redeem sinners like you and me. A body of doctrine that is centered on the way of redemption which is found in a person, the God-man Jesus Christ, who came and did what you and I have never done one moment of our lives. He fulfilled the law in its fullness, keeping the law, loving the Lord our God with our heart, His heart, mind, soul, and strength in His neighbor as Himself. A body of doctrine that is centered on the cross where He, he takes the wrath that we deserve in His person. The anger and judgment of God on sin was poured out on the Son. A body of doctrine that is centered on His resurrection from the grave. Okay? Where God validates His death. He validates the fact that the debt has been paid. So that when Jesus cried, It is finished! The Father declares in the resurrection, Indeed, it is finished for those who would repent of their sins and believe in a body of doctrine that is centered on His ascension to the right hand of the Father and the reality that one day He's coming to consummate His kingdom, a kingdom that has erupted into this present age through His victory over the grave. Paul says that our goal as elders is that the church of God would be sound in that faith. No other faith. That faith. Because that faith is the only faith, the only belief system, the only worldview that can lead to human flourishing. 
And more importantly, that can lead to the magnifying of God's glory in the world. In fact, Paul is going to show us in verses 14 to 16, three fundamental errors of unsound faith that are to be rejected. Notice with me in verse 14, he says, "...not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth." Now, literally, the commands of people who turn away from the truth is of mere human beings. Now, why do I make that distinction? Well, he is quoting uh, Isaiah chapter 29, which incidentally, Jesus himself quotes in Matthew 15, where he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay? That is false teaching at its core. It's centering on things that are not grounded and supported by the Word of God. A Word that itself is centered on a person, the God-man Jesus Christ. And so we see here that they were substituting human commands for the Word of God, which reflected a heart that was far from them. And it's very easy for us to fall into that pattern. We fall into that pattern when we find our identity and our significance in anything or anyone that is not Jesus. And it's something all of us are subject to do. For instance, we are guilty of this when we find our identity in our careers. In other words, job righteousness. So perhaps you find your identity in your job. You're a hardworking person. Uh, You are esteemed in your career. And you find your identity in that. And therefore, those who do not attain to what you've attained you kind of dismiss. You kind of look down your nose at. There's a kind of family righteousness that we are guilty of sometimes. You're a good parent. Your uh, kids obey you. Your kids uh, are compliant and respectful. And then you look down your nose at those who perhaps have not attained to the, uh, the parenting that you've attained to. There's an intellectual righteousness. I'm better read than other people. I am more knowledgeable than others. And so you find your identity in that. And then those that have not attained to that, you kind of dismiss. There's a theological righteousness. Now that is rampant in churches that esteem and value highly doctrine and theology as they should. It's also rampant at the seminary. And so you've got your I's dotted and your T's crossed theologically and the next fellow perhaps doesn't. And you have a sense of superiority over those people and groups. Uh, There's a mercy righteousness. This is much more subtle. Um, I am a very merciful person. I care for the poor. uh, And everyone else uh, who does not have that same commitment to the poor as I do are not as spiritual as I am. There's a financial righteousness. Uh, I manage my money wisely. I'm not in debt like these people. Okay? 
Uh, and so it's easy to find your, uh, your false identity in something like that. Fitness righteousness. I'm in shape. I work out. Look at these people who are not. And then, ultimately, legalistic righteousness. I do not drink, smoke, or chew, nor do I go with girls that do. Um, and you look around, you see there's too many people who do not care about holiness these days. And so it's easy for us to even fall into those traps when the Scripture clearly conveys that our identity is to be in Jesus alone. The ground of our approval is in Jesus alone. It's not by anything you do. Now, that's not to say we don't do, do things. That's not to say that we're not committed to kingdom causes. It's not to say we're not committed to righteousness and holiness. We'll see that later on. But all of that is the fruit. The ground of our acceptance, the ground of our identity is Jesus. And any kind of false teaching kind of swerves from that. Well, the second thing that... Uh, the second kind of unsound faith that's been rejected in this passage is a false understanding of purity. Look with me in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, Paul is refuting legalism with reference to food here. They were evidently teaching that Jewish dietary law still applied to the Christians. That's something that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And if you ate these forbidden foods, you defiled yourselves. Okay? But if you refused to eat, you became holier. But remember from our study in Luke, um, Jesus had an encounter with a Pharisee. Uh, this Pharisee invited Jesus for dinner. I doubt it was the... Uh, the I have to believe that it was probably the last time that he ever invited Jesus for dinner because it says when Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Imagine being the, the guest at a, at a dinner. Um, and the first words out of your mouth is a rebuke. You fools, did not he who made you the outside make the inside also, but give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean within. And Jesus is saying here that external conformity um, doesn't address the core problem. And that is the corruption of the heart. External uh, conformity to rules and regulations does not deal with the core issue. And earlier in Matthew chapter 15, he had said uh, as much the same thing. In Matthew 15, um, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he is speaking on this very issue of purity, internal purity and external purity. And um, what you have there in Matthew 15 is a very similar kind of um, conversation he has with his disciples. It says, 
He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then Peter said to him, explain that parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus is saying, and Paul is certainly saying in this passage, that the real issue is the heart. And the reason we behave and speak the way we do, those are symptomatic sins. The real issue is the heart. Okay, a heart that is not set on the living God. And that's why this is to be rejected. In fact, that kind of approach brings us to the final end of this passage. The third thing that is to be rejected. Notice with me in verse 16, this separation between what one professes and what one really is. He says they profess to know God but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, that is a very important verse. What that teaches us is that there are false professors in the world. And I would submit to you there are false professors in the American church. Those who perhaps prayed a prayer at a crusade. Those who perhaps were baptized, or I would say dunked. They weren't truly baptized. Those who came down um, in a time of commitment. Uh, Whatever the case may be, there is this kind of false profession that I think is rampant in churches today. Just because you make profession of faith does not mean you're a Christian. Now, the Bible is clear that we are to... uh, the, The Scripture... God wants us to be certain about our faith. He wants us to to know that we are uh, in the faith. He wants us to know that we believe. But Scripture also teaches we are to examine ourselves uh, to see that we're in the faith. We are to make our calling and election sure. And again, as I said earlier, I think one of the biggest problems that unbelievers have with the church is their critique of false professors. Those who claim to be a Christian, but whose works, whose lives betray that. And if you are someone here today who's never trusted in Christ, if I could submit to you, that's not true Christianity. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at here. And when he says there are those who profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Now, there are two ways to deny God by our works, and they're actually related. There's licentiousness. And that is, those Christians are those professing Christians who make profession of faith, but they have secret lives. They have lives of perversity, duplicity, um, immorality. They have private lives. Their lives are not marked by repentance. And one of the earmarks of a Christian is repentance. And so there are many today who make profession of faith, 
but they deny Jesus by their works. Their works of perversity. There's no conviction, just rationalization for their sin. The reason I do this is fill in the blank. Okay? And I would submit to you, if that is the pattern in your life, it may be that you're not a Christian. And I say that as lovingly as I can. And so one way to deny Jesus by our works is through licentiousness. Okay? Immorality. Enslavement to sin, which reflects a life that is not sealed and filled by the Holy Spirit. The second way to deny Jesus by our works is by legalism. And that is those who have a very cold and calloused approach to religion. All their eyes are dotted outwardly, but inwardly they are dead men's bones. There's no love that marks their life. There's no compassion. There's a critical spirit that goes unchecked and unrepented of. Comparisons of us versus them. This is a good behavior person versus a good news person. There's various ways we can deny him by our works. Paul makes it very clear in this passage. It is possible to be deceived into thinking you're a Christian when you are not. And one of the roles of elders is to deal with that, to expose that, to bring that to light. And that brings us to the final point. Not only must elders rebuke false doctrine, they must teach sound doctrine so that Christ's church may be sound in the faith. Verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the bookend of verse 9 of chapter 1. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. As for you, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word sound is the same word that's found in chapter 1 verse 13. The goal being that the church may be sound in the faith. Healthy, hygienic, if you will, doctrine. And so part of this is to silence false teaching and to rebuke false teaching. But we see as well that he is to teach. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, that reminds us of chapter 4, Second Timothy, where he He tells Timothy, as for you, you preach the word, you reprove, you rebuke, you correct with all patience and teaching. The way you deal with false teaching is that you rebuke it. And the way you grow your people up in that they may be sound in the faith is through sound teaching. Teaching that does not confront um, the cancer of sin is not sound teaching. And teaching that does not center on the burden of Scripture is not sound teaching either. And what is that burden? What is that burden? Well, Paul tells us earlier that the burden of Scripture, and this is how you discern if someone is a false teacher or a sound teacher. Does he pick up the burden of Scripture? A false teacher does not necessarily know he's a false teacher. All right? Is that teaching 
doctrine, our teaching, that's in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. That is the grid. Is this teaching centered on a crucified and resurrected Messiah? Is this teaching centered on the living God as He has revealed Himself to us through this Messiah? Is this teaching grace-based? You see, every other religion in the world teaches this. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And that's what makes Christianity so distinct. Christianity teaches, I am accepted through Jesus Christ alone, therefore I obey. And the person who gets that does not deny God by their works. Their works are the fruit of that gospel. Their works are the fruit of a life that's been forgiven, of a heart that's been changed and melted by that gospel. And that's why this text is so important. A very difficult text in one sense, but a very important text. It reminds us that doctrine does matter. And the question I would submit to you as we close, is that the gospel you believe? Is that the gospel you believe? Is it showing itself in life, in your life? Is it showing itself in your marriage? in your parenting, in your uh, interactions with your neighbors and your co-workers? Is it showing itself in your private life when no one's watching and it's just you and the computer? Because if it's not, you are denying God by your works. Is it showing itself in the most intimate of relationships you can have on earth? You and your wife, you and your husband. Is that relationship marked by repentance? Or is it marked by bitterness and coldness? This text is crucial for us because where the rubber meets the road is not what we profess. Okay? Because what we profess is betrayed or what we believe is betrayed by the very works that are produced by what we believe. And this text is also important for you if you've never trusted in Christ. This text is for you because what this text teaches us is that any kind of belief system that is not centered on Jesus Christ is a a belief system that will betray itself in time And it will not end well for you. But what this text is going to teach us throughout is that there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you will humble yourself and repent and trust in Him. That is Paul's call to us today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that's not trusted in your son, today would be the day.